turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We're actually not going to spend much time there this evening as we're on, in a sense, a little bit of a, a mini-series having to do with grace. Um, so last time we were together in Hebrews 13, which was two Sundays ago, we read of Paul's statement of the superiority of grace in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9. And in that we read this, Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. And the warning to not be carried away by diverse and strange doctrines. And we contemplated this idea of strange doctrines last time, if you recall, noting that this doesn't necessarily mean doctrines that are uh, abnormal, unusual, out of the ordinary, although those, those would certainly fall into strange doctrines, but rather the word there, strange, is a word that means foreign. And so the idea of a foreign doctrine is not necessarily a doctrine that sounds unusual per se or, or that sounds out of the ordinary per se, but rather it is foreign to the concept of sound doctrine. And then we had to ask the question, okay, if these strange doctrines are foreign, then they are foreign compared to what? And then Paul states here in this verse, the superior doctrine, the thing that is the standard for doctrine, he says it is good. It is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. So he says that these strange doctrines are doctrines that are contrary to the doctrine of grace. And Paul says it's a good thing for the heart to be established with grace. And in this context, which was our focus last time, we spend our time showing Paul's extensive New Testament teaching on the superiority of grace against what he would call the foreign doctrine of the law. And that's what we find here in this verse. That's why we kept it in context there. He says, not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. So he's warning them not to become preoccupied with meats, not to become preoccupied with the religious rituals uh, and expectations of ceremony and ceremonial law, that being rooted uh, as he's speaking to a Hebrew audience. If you, if you hear him say, Establish your heart with grace, not with meats. And he's writing to the Hebrews. We know what he's talking about, right? He's talking about the controversy that has come up in nearly every one of his epistles, which is the controversy between the law and grace and the difficulty that Jewish people had transitioning their mindset from the law to grace. And so we talked about the fact that grace is a superior doctrine and thus anything outside of grace, anything foreign to grace is called here a strange doctrine. And as we, we contemplated this, we made very clear that the law is not a foreign doctrine because it is evil. The law is not evil. The law is holy and right and good, Paul says. Not because it reflected anything false. Much to the contrary, the law reflects the character of God quite, quite plainly and, and obviously accurately. But only because the law, the expectations of the law, the, um, the, the, the cold, harsh nature of the law is foreign to grace. And this makes it a strange doctrine. So we've talked about the superiority of grace. The question I want to ask tonight and answer tonight is, well then what is grace? If grace is so superior, what is grace? And this is going to be a simple message in the sense that grace is truly a simple doctrine. But it's an essential message because this is the foundation of everything that is Christianity. 
And then next week, we'll take those principles, once we have defined grace, and we have established that it is the superior doctrine, as we did last time. Then next time, we'll take this and we'll say, now what does living grace look like? And that'll be a a, a fun message. But if grace is a preeminent doctrine, the preeminent doctrine, if it forms the functional standard by which all other doctrinal claims are measured, so that as someone makes a claim, as someone uh, seeks to have doctrinal authority, the measuring stick by which uh, or against which I measure the claims that they are making is the measuring stick of grace first and foremost then we would do well to understand what grace is. So that is going to be our task this evening. We are going to define grace. Then we'll move on, as I said, to understanding how grace interacts with the facets of the Christian experience so that we can understand properly why it is that grace is and must be the reigning, the supreme doctrine of the Christian life. Now, last time we were together, we spent our time contemplating several of Paul's teachings regarding the law. And by nature of how those teachings present themselves in contrast to grace itself, we saw that, again, the law is not wrong, but it's not grace. And this is very helpful to us. I've often said that one of the best ways to help somebody understand a concept is by telling them not only what that concept is, but also what it is not. I've gotten a great deal of feedback many times as it relates to our church website that the most helpful page on our website is the what we are not page. Because someone can walk down that and say, oh, okay, they aren't this, they aren't that, they aren't that, they aren't that. That helps me understand what they are because they are explicitly telling me what they aren't. And one of the passages we considered last time was Galatians chapters 3 and 4, which drew the reader's attention 430 years prior to the giving of the law at Sinai, when God made a promise to Abraham that was grace-oriented, that was unconditional in nature. And the unique characteristics of this unconditional promise, when contrasted with the law, was that it was a covenant of promise rather than a covenant of merit. The law was a covenant of merit. It was given to the people, but the expectations of the law and the rewards of the law were meritorious in nature. If you did right, you were blessed. If you did wrong, you were cursed. There was a a meritocracy to the Old Testament law of a sort. But not so with the Abrahamic covenant. But also, as we talked through that Abrahamic covenant in, in Galatians 3 and 4, we saw that Paul said that that covenant pertained not just to Abraham in that day, but as God promised to Abraham that, uh, and, and made promises to Abraham of his seed, that the seed that he was speaking of, and Paul makes this very clear, was in fact Christ. Paul thus arguing that the covenant of promise, the covenant of grace, was a promise made of Christ, made to Christ, made regarding Christ, in such a way that the promise of Christ and the promises of grace actually predate the promises of the law, predate the promises of the covenant of merit. And the covenant of merit, when it did come onto the scene, when the law did come onto the scene, it had no power in itself to annul the promises of grace that were made 430 years previously. Meaning that even at the time when the covenant of merit, when the law came into being, It had to have been recognized for anyone who was 
who had their eyes wide open, it had to have been recognized that that covenant of merit must eventually give way again to the covenant of promise at the time of Messiah. Because the promise as made to Abraham of Messiah was a promise of grace. Now, Paul does a very similar thing in Romans chapter 4 pertaining to Abraham. In our resurrection sermon last Sunday, we were just there. We, we spent a little bit of time in Romans chapter 4, and it's a very helpful chapter as it relates to defining grace. So I'd like to go back there again, and uh, we are going to spend some time in Romans 4. So if you have your Bibles, uh, being in Hebrews 13 isn't going to be as valuable to you. Romans 4 would be a little bit more valuable to you at this point. But in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, the Bible says this. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, then he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scriptures? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So once again, we are considering the covenant that God made with Abraham. And there's an interplay here as we see these verses between three particular concepts that I want to speak of as it relates to the nature of grace. And those three concepts are these. Work, merit, and debt. Work or effort... Merit, those would be earnings, and debt, that would be a payment. So in several of the passages we're going to explore today, we're going to see the interplay between these three terms, because they're all connected to each other uh, pretty strongly, but they are each individual in their own way. Let's lay a baseline for them, however. The concept of work, personal effort unto effect. And the extent to which that effort has an effect is the extent to which it has merit. So my personal effort is work in the biblical context. Now, this is important for us to think through because there will be people as you uh, seek to uh, talk about grace and you talk with grace uh, about grace to people, you talk with people about grace who will say, well, and then they'll try to say that something, say belief is a work. Well, belief is doing something, therefore belief must be a work. Well, not the way the Bible defines it. Work is a personal effort unto an effect. It is me putting personal effort into something to have a direct effect on the outcome. The extent to which that effort has an effect is the extent to which it has merit. And that's our second term, merit. The concept of merit is the earnings for one's work. That when I have put forth something, some effort, the effect of that effort entitles me to some remuneration or some earnings. That when my children do, uh, are, are diligent or show initiative, I feel compelled to reward them for said effort because it has been meritorious. Their effort is superior. Their effort has done something of worth that requires or that, that um, uh, is worthy of merit. And so my merit 
is the result of my work. And that leads us to our third term, which is debt. In many situations, when I have worked unto a, an effect, I merit a reward which places upon the one whom I have effectively worked for a debt owed to me which must be paid. With my children, this would be me going up to one of them and saying, if you go and clean your room, once you have cleaned your room, I will give you a treat. So they are told that there is a effort, and if their effort is up to the standard that I expect, then they have received merit, they have received uh, um, the um, earnings or the, uh, the effect of their work has been positive. Therefore, they, are, they have done what I've asked them to do. Thus, I have incurred a debt that I owe them because I told them that they would earn a treat for doing this work well. And thus, I pay them with the treat as a way to expunge my debt toward them for their meritorious effort. Now, if I do this, if I work, and I have merited a reward, which places upon the one whom, for whom I have worked a debt, which must be paid, I deserve that payment. I have merited that payment by virtue of the effectiveness of my work. Now, there's also one more application of debt that we can think of as it relates to the concept of debt and work. Another application of debt that relates to spiritual transactions that we must talk about. That being the idea that when at once I am given some spiritual blessing, or when I, I at once am given something, that I feel as though I have incurred a debt to the one who has given it to me. And this is the idea that maybe your neighbor comes over and uh, sees uh, something um, one of my children left something out in the yard and one of my neighbors comes over and picks it up and takes it over to the side of the house and, and, and puts it where it belongs and that was very, very kind and now I feel like, hey, you know, that was really kind and maybe it, it, it uh, saved whatever it was from the rain and so I, I go and I, I get a thank you card and I put a, uh, a gift card in it and I take it over to their house and I say, hey, I just wanted to thank you for that. Thank you for doing that for me and giving them something in return for their effort. I felt as though there was, I was indebted to them for something they did to me and so I am giving back to them as a way of repaying the debt for their kindness to me. And we'll talk about that also. So we have these three concepts. We have work, we have effort or merit, and we have debt. Work, merit, and debt. And I call these, as you can see on the screen here, anti-grace concepts. Because what we'll find as we walk through Romans 4 is that none of these three concepts are able to coexist in a definition of grace. If there is work, merit, or debt involved in a transaction, then it is not a gracious or a graceful transaction. It is a transaction of work, effort, merit, debt. So let's look through, let's go through Romans chapter 4 again and look through this. So Romans 4, verse 1 said, What shall we say that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? Verse 2, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. If Abraham were justified by works, as opposed to being justified by faith, then he would have whereof to glory. If any man could have kept the law, 
430 years later, when the law was brought into being, if any man could have kept the law, then he would have whereof to glory. He would have whereof to glory because he had kept the law. He had kept the righteousness of God by his own personal abilities, insight, wisdom, and self-discipline. But he would have whereof to glory, but not before God. The idea here is that he could glory in himself, not just in God. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If Abraham had been justified by any work of his own, by any merit of his own, then he would have in himself reason to boast, reason to glory, reason to exalt himself, because his justification would have been secured by his own effort. And Paul pits this concept squarely against the concept of grace, that if there is any merit by which I have earned what I receive, then it is impossible to say that it was given It was earned. I received what I received as a just payment for my meritorious effort. So we read in verse 4. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If Abraham's justification had been on the basis of some effort, effort of his own, then he would be able to glory in that the justification which he received from God was God paying Abraham a debt based upon the merit of his efforts. If Abraham's efforts, if Abraham's righteousness, if Abraham's work, if if anything in Abraham, any good thing was present that caused Abraham to be justified, that caused him to in any way, shape, or form receive justification then God was giving it to him as a payment for his effort, for his merit. Abraham was meritorious. He was in himself. He had in himself something whereby God would be judicially obligated because God is just to give Abraham justification, to pay it to him. Because to the man who works, the reward is reckoned of debt. If I put in a a week's work, two weeks of work, at the end of that two weeks, my employer owes me money. When I get the paycheck, I don't look and say, wow, what a gift. How, How kind they were to give this to me. No, they better give that to me. I earned it. I put my time in and I exchanged time for money. For those two weeks until I get that paycheck, my my employer is incurring a debt that he owes to me that then he pays at the end of two weeks or at the end of the month and he pays me that, he pays off that debt with my paycheck. And that is the idea here. Something reckoned of grace cannot simultaneously be reckoned of debt. That idea of of debt cannot coexist with grace. Grace is given freely. No debt, no merit, no work. If there's work, if there's merit, if there's debt, then it is not grace. In that the work, the effort unto effect, is the thing that incurs the debt through the merit of my efforts, then these things 
must all be strange doctrines to grace in relation to grace. Now, that doesn't mean that the doctrines don't have any benefit. That doesn't mean they're, they're, they're apostate doctrines. That doesn't mean they're evil doctrines, but it means that they are strange. They are foreign to grace. And we find this to be so as we journey outside of Romans 4. Romans eleven six tells us in relation to the remnant of Israel in the, the, the concept of, of faith and grace. Romans eleven six 6 says, And if by grace, as it relates to Israel in the covenant, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. You see here, if, if it is of work, then it can't be of grace. If it is of grace, then it cannot be of work. The two are uh, stand in, in fundamental contradiction one to another. You can't have it both ways. So when the Bible says that we live under grace, that we are saved by grace through faith, that we stand in grace, if somebody tells you that they stand in grace or they have been saved by grace through faith, and then as they seek to describe unto you the manner of their understanding, it deals with work, then they don't understand grace properly. If you in your heart believe and know that you have been saved by grace through faith or that you are living in the grace wherein you stand, but then you are dealing with concepts whereby you are, you are, 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 are wrestling with your work and your merit or debt before God, then you're missing something as it relates to grace. If something is by grace, then it is not of works because grace is not grace if works are involved. If something is of works, then it is not of grace, because work is not work if grace is involved. And this is bolstered by the wonderful and well-known salvation passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now notice how the phrases correspond to one another and help us understand. By grace... Ye are saved through faith. And this is contrasted in the verse with the next phrase. And that not of yourselves. Rather, salvation is a gift of God, thus corresponding grace to a gift, helping us understand what grace is. It is a gift of God. And then we see there another contrast, not of works, the second phrase defines what Paul means by not of yourselves. You see the parallels there? By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is the it? Grace. Or salvation, depending on how we want to play it out. Salvation by grace. The gift of God. That's the fact that it is of grace. Not of works. Corresponds to not of yourselves. Why? lest any man should boast. Because if I have a part in my own salvation, if it is my work, my merit, or an incurring or payment of a debt by which I find my way into heaven, then I have whereof to boast. But not before God. Just like the Bible said in Romans chapter 4. Grace is a gift. Something which is given without respect to work, merit, or payment. And this is what we would call the perpetual context of grace. No matter which context 
We can read about grace. We can study grace. We can consider grace. It will always be that grace is something that is given freely. It has nothing to do with whether or not you have earned it, nothing to do with whether or not you deserve it, nothing to do with whether or not uh, God owes it to you, because if any of those things are involved, then it's no longer grace. And so by virtue of it being a free gift, it has not been gained by effort, earned by merit, or received by recompense. And it is unto this end that we characteristically define grace as unmerited favor. Being given something that we do not deserve. That's where that definition comes from. Unmerited favor. Being given something that I do not deserve. And this, the implications of this upon the Christian life, they are quite pervasive. We'll devote an entire sermon next week to the practical realities of grace borne out not just through salvation, but through sanctification. What living in grace looks like. And by the way, that doesn't mean I don't do any work, right? We'll talk about that next week. The reality of grace in our lives does not mean I don't do any work. The reality of grace in my life defines or establishes how it is I see the work I'm doing and what motivates me unto the work. Am I working in order to earn something or am I working because of what Jesus Christ has already earned for me? That's the difference. We'll talk about that next week. Do I do things to do or do I do things because of what has already been done? And that's, that, that's what we'll think of as we consider what it means to live life, to continue to live life after salvation in grace and, and how, how that interplays with the idea that quite obviously there are expectations placed upon us in the New Testament as to what to do, right, before the Lord. But for today... Let's think about what this means together. Let's think about what the definition of grace means together. First, let's think about the ideas of effort unto either merit. I've talked about merit, but the idea of, of grace also, it's not, it's not just that merit cannot play a role in grace, but also demerit, right? The idea of merit being positive results, the idea of demerit being negative results of the things that I've done. Let's put those two kind of anti-grace topics together and we'll think about them. By definition, the rewards of grace cannot be and will never be withheld from a person because of demerit any more than they can be given to someone because of merit. Let me say that again. By definition, the rewards of grace cannot be and will never be withheld from someone because of demerit any more than they, can, they will be given to someone because of their merit. The very reality of demerit in the human condition is actually why grace matters, why grace is so necessary, right? Because every one of us is in a state of demerit. None of us are worthy of God's righteousness. None of us are worthy of justification. None of us are worthy of forgiveness. None of us are worthy of salvation. We are all in a state of demerit. We are all, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You cannot fall short of grace through unworthiness in yourself. Why can you not fall short of grace because of unworthiness? Now, you can fall short of grace because of unbelief. But you cannot fall short of grace because of unworthiness. Why? Because if worthiness in yourself had any bearing on the rewards of grace, then it would not be the rewards of grace. It would be the rewards of merit. Right? 
It's not grace if we're talking about merit and demerit. It's not grace if we're talking about what a person has done or what a person has not done. Well, I'm, I'm unworthy of grace, Pastor. You don't know the things I've done in my life. I don't know the things you've done in your life, but I do know that you cannot be worthy or unworthy of grace because grace cannot include anything having to do with worth or it's not grace. So there is no such thing as being unworthy of grace because grace cannot factor in worth. If it factors in worth, merit, then it is not grace. Not only can the rewards of grace not be withheld because of any demerit, but by definition, they cannot even be lessened because of demerit. Grace does not function to make up the difference in one who is lacking. So that one who is lacking more needs more grace, and one who is lacking less needs less grace. When I get to heaven, God isn't going to say, well, you were a pretty good person, and you did a lot of righteous things on your own, so you only need a little bit of grace to get into heaven. You're still, you still need grace, because no one can get into heaven on their own, but you only need a little bit. And then someone else walks through, and he says, wow, you're going to need an awful lot of grace to get in. That's not how grace works. Grace does not make up the difference in one who is lacking because grace cannot be lessened by demerit or added to because of merit or else it's not grace. Because grace cannot factor in merit. If it's by work, then it's not of grace. If it's of grace, then it's not by work. We often kind of think of grace this way, don't we? The idea that, well, I'm going to need a little extra grace today. And, and, and I know what you mean and you know what I mean when we say that. But at the end of the day, grace is, in fact, completely outside of the context of merit, work, or debt. And it must be, or it is not, grace. It cannot be this way. The moment any idea of merit or demerit is imposed upon grace, is imposed upon the rewards of grace, it definitionally ceases to be grace because it's bound to merit. And merit means effort, and merit means debt, and effort and, gra- and merit and debt cannot coexist with grace by the definition in the Bible. So grace does not and indeed cannot fall short of being measureless. If I have grace, I've got it all. If I don't have grace, I have none of it. So then when we look next week at the concepts of grace in the Christian life, we'll see just how important it is that we understand both that Christ has taken the wrath of God for every man, every sin ever committed, and then why it is Christ is free to exercise in every case grace, because every demand or limitation that human sin might exact from the righteousness of God has been forever settled by the finished work of Christ. This freely, this frees God up to operate in absolute grace toward humanity so that God can be, as Romans chapter 3, verse 26 says, both just and the justifier of men who avail themselves. As a matter of fact, we talked about that last week too, didn't we? In our time regarding the resurrection. So no demerit even by degree, can be factored into God's dealings by grace. 
That's the idea of merit and demerit. So that's the first thing I wanted to think through. The relationship of grace, not just to merit, but the relationship of grace to demerit. That I cannot be in a state where I am unworthy of grace because by its very nature, no one is worthy of grace or else it's not grace. Second, let's think about the idea of debt together. By definition, an act of grace is not grace if it is done to pay a debt or if it incurs a debt. And we'll think about these in turn. The act is not grace if it is exercised to pay a debt. An act is not an act of grace if it is exercised to pay a debt. For example, while we speak of God's forgiveness as God's grace... God's forgiveness is not actually a gracious act, per se. God's forgiveness is a judicial act. Jesus earned forgiveness on the cross, didn't he? Jesus purchased our forgiveness. So that God's forgiveness of sin is not actually, from the biblical definition, an act of grace. God's forgiveness of sin is a judicial act. It's a judicial result of Jesus' death on the cross in payment for my sin. The same can be said of justification, which is a judicial act of declaring a man righteous on the basis of what Jesus did. Formally speaking, this is actually not a gracious act either because it's based on the merit of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Grace comes in when God ushers me into the rewards of, of forgiveness and of justification. So Jesus purchased my forgiveness. Jesus purchased my justification. Those are acts, those are judicial acts based upon Jesus's merit on the cross. Of course, not my merit, but Jesus's merit. But then God ushers me into the rewards of forgiveness. The reward of grace realized in forgiveness is what? It's eternal life. So eternal life is grace as the reward of the forgiveness that I have received on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross. The forgiveness was purchased. Eternal life is given. The gracious gift of God is eternal life through the forgiveness earned by Jesus Christ on the cross. Likewise, the reward of grace that is realized through the judicial act of justification is imputed righteousness. Jesus earned my justification. Righteousness is then imputed on me, and that is a reward of justification, and that is grace. By grace, we who have been judicially declared righteous are now treated as righteous by God. And that is the reward of grace that's rooted in the merit of Jesus Christ. So an act is not grace if it's done to pay a debt. Jesus' death on the cross was not gracious. It was judicial. But Jesus' death on the cross then opened up grace to all men, freed God from the limitations of his justice, because God is a just God, but the Bible says that, that, that God wanted to be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. So Christ's judicial act on the cross then opened grace to me. And if I receive this grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then the rewards of grace can freely flow to me as I have believed. The reward of eternal life the reward of imputed righteousness. 
Secondly, so that's the idea that grace is never a payment for a debt. The second concept here as it relates to debt, grace is never a payment for a debt, but also grace never incurs a debt. And this is something that, again, we haven't talked about. We'll talk about it more next week. When I receive a reward by grace, a gracious gift bestowed upon me, we talked about eternal life, we talked about uh, imputed righteousness, and every other spiritual blessing, the Holy Spirit of God. By definition, if these are gracious gifts, then they do not and cannot come with strings attached. I cannot be indebted to God by virtue of these gifts that he has given to me. An act cannot be gracious in character if a debt is incurred for receiving it. And in much the same way that an act is not grace if it is done to pay a debt, roots our mind in the ideas of salvation, the idea that grace is not grace if it incurs a debt roots our mind in the concept surrounding serving Christ after salvation. And this is what I, I, I alluded to already. We'll talk about next week. The motivation for holy living as we live a grace-filled life. There is no biblical call for service or offering with a view of repaying God for what he has given us. If I could repay God for the gift that he gave to me, then I could have just paid him in the first place and Jesus wouldn't have needed to die. If, I, if there was any possible way that I could repay God for what he has given me, salvation, eternal life, imputed righteousness, justification, then I could have just paid the debt myself and Jesus wouldn't have had to die. The reason why Jesus had to die is because there's no way I could pay the debt and I still can't pay a debt. The motivation for the Christian life, Christian, is not repayment. It's love and appreciation. Not that I must earn the favor which I have received, but rather that I will yield my life to please the one who has already placed such favor upon me. May I say that again? The motivation for the Christian life is not repayment, it is love and appreciation. It is not that I must earn the favor that I have already received, but rather that I will gladly yield my life to please the one who has already placed such favor upon me. The favor is already there. And if the favor is there, then how should I treat the one who has favored me? That's the motivation for the Christian life. Service to Christ is an outworking of grace, a means of, express, of expressing the love that we have toward the God who has already done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In other words, Christians, we are called by grace to respond to, not to recompense, God's grace toward us with grace toward others. So that we operate in the same free and joyous liberality toward others that God has operated toward us. Conditioned upon the very same foundation. 
the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus did the work. He paid the debt. He earned the merit. He did the work. Now, because of that, God is free to be both just and the justifier of the ungodly, to pour upon me His grace. And now, as I live in grace, I am called to and free to pour that out to others. And this is what undergirds the generosity of mind and of body, which is characteristic of Christianity. A life of grace, embodying the command that Jesus gave to the twelve when he sent them out to minister in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. He said in the very last half of that verse, freely ye have received, freely give. This is the doctrine of grace. Freely ye have received, freely give. The motivation for us to serve is not a kind of fear that we're going to fall short of something. Jesus took care of that on the cross. The motivation is that we will not fall short because of what Jesus did, and it has been bestowed upon me freely. How can I do but the same to others? Freely I have received. Freely I give. Christ has paid the debt. Christ has taken the wrath. He has earned all the spiritual blessings. And whether I'm receiving or I am giving, the merit of Christ is the foundation of which all grace is given. And then I give and I receive without reference to effort, without reference to merit, without reference to debt. Freely I have received. Freely I give. Now, before I finish up, I want to go back to Romans. And I want to continue in Paul's teaching about grace through this lens that we have established. Moving past Romans chapter 4 into Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, the Bible says this, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them, that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift for the judgment, uh, so, was, uh, so is the gift, excuse me, for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Verse 17, for if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. 
that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So here we have the fullness of grace brought together and effective unto salvation. Sin entered the world by Adam. Death entered into the world by sin. Death passes upon all men because sin passes upon all men. Death reigns from Adam to Moses and then comes the law. The law says there's a way that you can avoid death and that is by keeping the law and so not transgressing. But no man could keep that law. So death continued to reign, but then came grace. Not as the offense, so also is the free gift. Through the offense of one, many be dead. Through the gift of grace by one man, many live. So grace abounds in the heart of the sinner and reigns through righteousness by Jesus Christ. And that is grace. Now let's take it back to Hebrews 13.9 and draw upon our understanding of grace to establish what we're, what we're learning here in Hebrews. Be not carried away with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. It's a good thing that the heart be established with grace. Freely you have received, freely give. Not by work, not by merit, not by debt, but unmerited favor, given me being given something which I cannot deserve. No amount of eating or not eating certain types of meats. No amount of keeping or not keeping certain days. No amount of, of ritualistic zeal can earn for me any sort of merit, any sort of favor, any sort of debt, any sort of, uh, of meritorious effort before God because those things are not grace. Therefore, these practices that have been put in place are not, they are foreign to the, the doctrine that has been established through Jesus Christ. And it is for this reason that we don't have to submit ourselves to said rituals. Now, in the Old Testament, they did. Why? Because they were under a covenant of merit. But these things are foreign to the fundamental nature of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ came to establish that which was established for, to that which was promised 430 years prior to the law. This being grace. When God promised to Abraham and to his seed, not two seeds, but to one, and that being Christ, Galatians tells us. God made a promise, promise of grace. That, re that, that promise of grace was realized on the cross. And now we live under grace. And it is good that our hearts be established with this grace, not with meats. Not with these things which have not profited them that have been occupied by them. So Christian, let us establish our hearts in grace. How are you doing with grace this evening? Are you rightly oriented to grace? Are you rightly oriented to grace as it relates to your salvation? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Are you rightly related to grace as it relates to your salvation? Well, pastor, I don't feel very saved today because I haven't been very good today. I haven't done a lot of good things today. I've been a pretty, pretty wicked sinner today, so maybe, I, 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 may, maybe I'm not worthy of salvation. Well, you're right about that. Thank God salvation has nothing to do with your worth. You can't be worthy of salvation, nor can I. Because if you could be worthy of it, then it's not by grace. 
Much to the contrary, let us establish our hearts with grace. Next week, we'll learn more about what it means to live therein. What does it look like? And that's what we'll talk about next time. For this week, the question is this. Do you understand grace? Do you see how grace relates to the Christian life? Do you understand its superiority to that which has gone before? Not that the law was evil or wrong or bad or anything of the sort. It was just and is just inferior to that which now is, which God had always intended, which God had promised to Abraham. And the law, 430 years later, cannot annul it. And now it's here and it's ours. And thank God for it. Let's rejoice in grace this evening. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.